everybody? If you got your Bibles, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to cover two whole chapters. We haven't done that. Yeah, we had not done that in a while. Um, normally we try to cap, uh, at the most do one, but uh, these two chapters fit very, very close together. And so we're going to try to uh, cover both of them this morning. The title of our lesson this morning is Repentance. Uh, repentance. I want to begin with a, a scripture out of the New Testament. And of course, we're going through the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible. But I want to start with the New Testament because it's going to kind of set the stage. This is, a, this is a, an incredible scripture. This is Paul writing to Titus, and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, if you don't know what he's talking about right there, he's talking about repentance. That's repentance. Look at that again. Grace comes into your life, and what does it do? It trains you to renounce ungodliness, to renounce the world, to renounce uh, worldly passions, and to live self-control. That's a, the word repentance means to turn. You're, you're going one way. When you repent, you turn and go the other. That's repentance right there. That verse goes on says this in verse 13, "...waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, for what reason? To redeem us from all lawlessness," or, or that word means sin, "...and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." Once again, what is that? That's repentance. Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us or buy us back from sin and that we turn and become a people that's zealous for good works. Now, why do I bring that up this morning? Because there seems to be this notion in Christian circles and church circles today that a person can come in and somehow get born again, experience the grace of God, and not change their life that they can walk out of this building and they can go back and just go back to the life they've been living and not make any change. It's called free grace. Uh, You can Google it. It's called the lordship controversy, that somehow you can make him your savior, but you don't have to make him your lord. Now, let me just tell you people, the Bible does not teach that at all. It's not even close to that. I don't know where they get that from. But what you'll hear sometimes because of that is they'll have the idea that we shouldn't come down on sin uh, too hard. But listen to me, grace is not a license to sin, it is a redemption from sin. It's a buying back from sin. I'll tell anybody, if you walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer and said you were born again, and your life hadn't changed, you weren't born again. You just said some words, that's all you did. Nothing happened in your heart. Because when the grace of God appears in our heart, it changes us. It redeems us, it buys us back. Therefore, when grace comes into our lives, not only should it, it must lead to repentance, let me tell you, it will lead to repentance. It will lead to a changed life. We have a saying in this church, true salvation equals a changed life. Okay? It's not enough just to pray a prayer. I used to tell the kids all the time, I, I, don't tell me you got saved five years ago, are you saved today? What are you doing today? Does your, does your, does your life show, show repentance today? That's what counts. Not some, some cards you signed or some aisle you walked or even some prayer you prayed. Does it evidence in itself today? Now, 
I bring all that up because we're going to see this evidence of repentance in these chapters 43 and 44 today in, in Genesis. So, if you haven't been with us, Joseph is, has, has met his brothers and he's been, we've said often, we don't really know why Joseph does all the things that he does. He's disguising himself. He doesn't just say, hey, brothers, it's me. He, he pretends he's somebody else. He acts like he's somebody else. I'm not sure why he was doing that. I don't know his motives. But I can tell you this, uh, I do know God's motives. It's God's, God wills that all men come to repentance. God wants to lead all. He, he shines grace in people's life, even, and He wants them to come to repentance. And that's what He's trying to do with these brothers. He's using Joseph's actions, the grace of Joseph's actions, to lead these boys uh, to repentance. So let's read it. It begins with Jacob and Judah. Now, as we've seen often in Jacob's life, and we've been in these chapters for many months now, uh, Jacob is a poor father. He's a poor husband. He is a, his leadership skills are terrible. Um, in fact, he's got some character, and we're going to see this today. And the characteristics we're going to see of his leadership are very prevalent in, in our world today. And I want to point that out to you. Let's begin in uh, Genesis 43, verses 1 through 2. It says this, Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. Now there are three things we're going to see in, in Joe's, uh, Jacob's lack of leadership. The first thing is procrastination. Okay? Procrastination. You remember the brothers had gone down to Egypt and they bought grain. And Jake, they'd entered into an agreement with, with Joseph. Joseph said, Go back take this grain, go back, and bring, take your younger brother and bring him back with you. And they had said, okay, we agree to that. But they, that has not happened. And in fact, Jacob does not want his youngest son, Benjamin, to leave. And so he just procrastinates. That's how he, he addresses the situation. He just, he just puts it off. In fact, as best we can tell, they have delayed for an entire year. They've sat there for an entire year and done nothing, and they've just ate all the grain. They're in this famine. They've got this grain, but eventually their, their grain runs out, and they're going to have to do something, okay? Now, later on, Judah, this is funny, in verse 10, if you want to look ahead real quick, Judah will look at his daddy and said, if we hadn't delayed, we could have been already down there and back twice. He said, we're just putting off the inevitable. We could have already been down there and come back and had plenty of grain for everyone. But now the procrastination is over. The situation is always there on the horizon, and now it's facing him head on. So what does he do? Well, now that he's procrastinated, the next thing he does is he plays it down. He pretends it's not as bad as everybody says it is. But look what he says. Go buy us a what? Just a little food. Folks, a little food is a Band-Aid. That, that, that's just a, it's a temporary thing. They don't need a little food. They need a lot of food. They got a lot of people to feed. They got a lot of years of famine ahead of them. They don't need a little food. But see, one of the ways, by the way, don't we procrastinate? Don't we play things down and pretend things? It's not quite as bad as everybody says it is. He's, he's just like us. And he just pretends it's not that important. By the way, not only is he minimizing the fact that they don't have any food, remember his, his, his uh, second oldest son, Simeon, is in captivity. He's being held in Egypt. Does he not want him back? 
You see, in the end, it's inevitable. They're going to have to go back. They have to. There's, there is no way around it. But he just puts it off and plays it down and puts it off and plays it down. So Judah takes a stand, one of his sons. Look at verses 3 through 5. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother down with us, we'll go and we'll buy food. But if you don't send him, we're not going. For that man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah just stands up to his father and says, Hey, you send Benjamin with us, we'll go. You don't send him, we're not going anywhere. So, so what will... This is funny. I mean, this is... When I, I say this all the time, these guys are just like us. So we've procrastinated, we've played the problem down, and now it, it's built up to a crisis point. And what do we do? <clears throat> well, we're going to see here in just a second. You see, Judah calls a spade a spade. Somebody eventually, in any kind of problem situation, has to stand up and say, this is the way it is. Somebody has to do it. In this case, it seems to be Judah. Now, I want you to watch what, uh, how Jacob reacts what does he do? He just blames everybody. Look at verses 6 to 7. Israel said, why did you do me so bad? Why did you create this situation? Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why didn't you just keep your mouth shut? Why didn't you just lie? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was in answer to these questions. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother down. He procrastinates, he plays it down. When it all else fails, he just blames everybody else around him. He says, it's all your fault. None of this would have happened if you'd have just lied. None of this would have happened if you hadn't told that Egyptian that you had a younger brother. By the way, do you understand how useless a statement that is? Do you understand how useless it is to blame like that? It, it does nothing to solve the situation, does it? It adds nothing to anything. It, it's just a man lashing out because he's faced with a, something that he doesn't want to do and he doesn't see any way out of it and it's like you backed him in a corner and, and he just blames. There's a lot of that goes on in our world today, isn't it? We see it all the time. Now, remember, a year ago when they had first got back, Reuben, the oldest son, had, had told Jacob, hey, let me take Benjamin and go back and... And Jacob said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. But it seems now that Judah is starting to rise as a leadership or as a leader in his uh, family. Look at verses 8 through 10. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that, may, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If, and, and then he says that if we had not delayed, we could already bend him down there and back twice. Okay, let's just, let's just deal with this thing, Judah says. So for whatever reason, be it the fact they don't have any food, be it the fact that uh, his family has just basically stood up and said, we're not going. For, finally, he just realized, I have no other Choice, And so he finally just says, okay, we, we've got to do this thing. Now, some people believe that, in fact, you read some commentaries on this, they believe that finally Judah, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob shows some maturity. That, that finally he kind of steps up to the plate and, and shows some, some faith. I don't see that at all. 
Now, you, may, you may agree with that, and that's fine. I don't agree with that at all. In fact, I want you to look at his words. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, Well, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, a little gum, a little myrrh, some pistachio nuts, and some almonds. You see those words? Well, you got to do it. Let me tell you, those are the words of a man doing something he does not want to do. It's a man that is backed in a corner and just says there's absolutely nothing else to do. Okay, if you got to do it, if it must be so. I don't see a man of faith. I don't see a godly man of maturity. I see a man influenced by family. I see a man influenced by fear. I don't see a leader. Do you? He goes on, verses 12 through 14. He says, take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. There's two more statements there. He refers to God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. But you notice he's not praying. He's almost wishing. You see, as, as godly believers, we don't have to say, may God do this. We can ask God to do it. But he never, I don't see him asking God to bless them. He just says, may God bless you. Oh, it's almost like a wish more than a, than a prayer. He, he should be able to ask God directly. But I never see him do that. And of course, his, his final statement, well, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. That's fatalism, not faith. That's fatalism, not faith. See, I, I just don't see... I just see a man backed into a corner making a decision because he has absolutely nothing else to do. So finally, they've decided to go back and now they return to Egypt. Verse 15. So the men took the present and they took double the money with them and they took their Benjamin, the, the youngest brother, and they arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. So they come back to him and they've got this, this plan the first thing they're going to do is they're going to offer him a, a gift of, of some of the best products, pistachio nuts and almond nuts and, and, and uh, myrrh and, and some, some balm and things like that. And then they're going to give him back the money that was hid in their sacks on the first trip. And, of course, they have Benjamin just as, as he had asked, verse 16 through 18. So when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, "'Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal.'" And make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said to one another, It's because of that money which was replaced in our sacks the first time. That's why we're being brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our, our donkeys. So they're, they're being brought to Joseph's house and they think this ain't good. This is bad news, man. He, we're gonna, it, it, he, he knows that we didn't pay for that food the first time around, and now he's going he's gonna to assault us, throw us in prison, seize all of our stuff. And so they're very desperate, so they, they're looking for somebody to explain the situation to. Verses 19 to 23. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, and they spoke with him at the door. So you can see the situation. They've, they've come up to Joseph's house on their donkeys or their wagons, and the steward goes up to open the door, and they run up to him before they go in the house, and they catch him at the door, and they say, hey, we want to we talk to you. And they said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, 
we opened our sacks, and there was in each man's money, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food, and we don't know who put the money in our sacks on the first trip. And he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So they're thinking, okay, we're going to give the money back, and that's going to smooth everything over. And this guy just brushes it aside. Don't worry about that. That, I I got your money. He doesn't give them an explanation, but they just brush it aside, right? And so they were really hoping that the guy would say, oh, well, now that explains it. Right? That's what they were hoping. And he just says, I don't worry about it. I got your money. God blessed you, you know. They're like, you know, where did that come from? So now they're going into the house. They've got this meeting with Joseph. And in their mind, the money has been, that was part one of their plan. That got pushed aside. So now it all comes down to these gifts that they're bringing him, right? So here's, here's the meeting. It finally happens. Verses 24 to 25. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water... And they had washed their feet, and he had given their donkeys fodder. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread. Now notice, they prepared the present. They heard he's coming, they prepared the present. I I, I can just see them, there's 11 of them in that room, and they're getting everything ready. They got the gifts out on the table, they got those pistachio nuts, they got those almond nuts, and Judah says, let's put the pistachio nuts first, and, and Reuben says, no, let's put the almond nuts over here, let's, let's scatter them out and make them... I mean, they're, they're fussing over these presents, they got to get it just right, because they're relying on gifts to win Joseph's favor. Let me tell you, that's exactly how people are with God. It's exactly how we are with God. We rely on our works. I'm a good person. I'm just going to give a little money here. I'm just going to go to church right here. I'm going to do this. And we just, we we want want to get everything just so, so God will have mercy on us. That God will love us. So that somehow we can earn His his favor. Let me tell you, you'll notice when Joseph comes in, he doesn't even give them a second glance. He doesn't ask them where they were grown, what month they were harvested in, how they seasoned the pistachio nuts. He doesn't ask them anything. See, grace doesn't care about peanuts. It cares about people. It doesn't care about your... Grace doesn't care about works. It cares about people. And that's exactly what Joseph shows. Look at verses 26 to 33. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, And they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired immediately about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep or to cry. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination. You remember we talked early on, the Egyptians, there was all kind of racial bigotry. The Egyptians absolutely despised Hebrews. 
And in fact, even though Joseph is the vice president of the country, he's the second in command, Egyptians will not eat with him. When he sits down to eat a meal, he sits at a table all by himself, and the, and the Egyptians and their servants and all them, they sit at a table by themselves. This is how bigoted or how much racial animosity they had. They would not have anything to do with them, even at, to the point would not eat with Joseph. Verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, he's talking about the brothers, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Now, why are they amazed? Well, first of all, they're probably amazed because they're having a meal, because they fully expected him to kill them or to do something to them. So that's number one. But here's another reason they're amazed. It seems like that Joseph had set up the seating so that they went from Reuben all the way down to Benjamin in the exact order that they were born. And they look at one another and saying, how does he know that? How did he know to seat us that way? See, to them, he, they're already in their mind, this guy's he's not normal. He knows things he shouldn't, and, and he's putting that in their mind. He knows things they shouldn't know. They, they got no idea how he could have figured that out. Verse 34. So portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Chapter 44. We, we just roll right over into verse 1 and 2. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, Joseph is just about, is, is going to test his brothers. This is going to be, you know, last, our lesson last week was Joseph's greatest test. This is his brother's test. You see, 22 years earlier, they had, dug, they had thrown their brother, their fa- the favorite son of their father, they threw him in a pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites who sold him into slavery. 22 years later, they're going to have the same opportunity to get rid of the favorite son. He's going to present them the exact same opportunity on a golden platter. This is their test to see whether or not they've actually changed, to see whether they've actually repented. Verses 3 and 5. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, I want you to get up and follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this, talking about the cup, that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this, although I'm not really sure why. Let me tell you, Joseph does not practice divination. Divination is, is, the, is the idea that you can foretell the future through communicating with the dead or communicating with evil spirits. Joseph doesn't do that. When he interprets dreams, he always gives the credit to who? God. God does this. God does he, he never He doesn't communicate with evil spirits. He doesn't practice divination. That's, that's not what this is saying. What he's doing is, see, all to this point, he's disguised himself. He's, 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 he's wearing Egyptian clothing. He's speaking the Egyptian language. They have no clue that he knows Hebrew. He doesn't have a beard in the way of the Egyptians where all the Hebrews have beards. He's 22. When they last saw him, he was 17. Now he's around 39. 
They got no idea who he is, and, and he speaks roughly to them. And now what he's doing is, is he's saying, you want to know how I knew how to seat you guys in order? See, he's, he's blaming it on divination. So he wants them to think, man, this guy knows stuff. This guy knows how to do that. And what it'll do is it's going to discourage them from lying. It's going to discourage them from deception, and it's going to make them tell him the truth. Verses 6 through 11. So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought it back to you from the land of Canaan. Then how could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Now here's the test. And he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, but the rest of you can go. In other words, whoever I found, if I find this cup with one of you, that one's going to be my servant. The rest of you, you're innocent. You'll be able to go and return to your homeland. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now here's the test. Twenty-two years earlier, they got rid of the favorite son. They were jealous of him. And now there's a new favorite son, Benjamin, and they've got an opportunity to get rid of him. All they have to do is just say, okay, let's, let's get out of here as quick as we can and leave Benjamin here. And doing that would get, would get rid of that favorite son. Doing that would, they, and it would just show they're the exact same men that they were 22 years ago. The situation's got to be tempting, doesn't it? Like Joseph, Benjamin, he's far from home. He's several hundred miles. uh, Jacob could never know what happened. He'll he'll never know anything about this. He's accused of a crime. they got no way of of proving him innocent, right? There's no opportunity to establish his innocence or anything like that. They could merely choose to walk away and go and enjoy their freedom. They could come back to their father just like they had done 22 years ago and said, here, we found this... We found his jacket and there's blood all over it and just let their father think whatever he thought. They could just, they could do that and get away scot-free. See, the same temptation faces these men 22 years later. What are they going to do? See, this is the moment of truth. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came near to Joseph's house, he was still, and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. They tear their clothes as a sign of grief. That was a sign in, in ancient cultures of, of grief and sorrow and mourning. And they all tore their clothes and they all returned to Joseph's house. You see, something different is taking place. This is not going to be Dothan all over again. This is a completely different situation. Verses 15 and 16. So Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He said, Don't you know I'm going to know what you do? And Judah said, And I want you to notice his words, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak of? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilty of your servants, plural. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand 
the cup has been found. They take the blame right alongside their brother. It's no more I, me, him. It's we. We are your servants. We can't clear ourselves. We do this thing. Verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me, this is Joseph, Far be it from me that I should do so. In other words, he's going to give them one more chance. You can get out of this thing. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. He gives them another chance. Don't, I know you say all that, but what he wants to know, is this real? You just, are you just spouting words to get him out of here? Or is this real? Is this really your heart? So he gives them one more opportunity. One more opportunity to see if they've really repented, if they've really changed who they are, okay? Verses 18 to 34. Then Judah went up to him. Here's Judah again, and I want you to watch very... He's going to basically recount the whole story, but I want you to watch what he says at the end because it's going to be very important. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, Yes, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, so that I may set eyes on him. And we said to to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he leaves his father, his father will die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again and buy us a little food, we said, We can't go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol, or to the grave. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that that boy is not with us, he's going to die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now watch what he says. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Judah says, Let me stay here and let him go. And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I want to make a couple of final thoughts here as we close. We all know what happens next, don't we? We've read this story probably thousands of times if you've grown up in church. Joseph is going to reveal himself. He's going to send the interpreter out of the room and he's going to start speaking Hebrew. And he's going to say, it's me. It's your Joseph. I'm your brother. Now, the question is, why does he do it now instead of earlier? A year earlier when they came and they walked in that room, he could have said it right then. Hey, it's me. The guy you threw in a hole and the guy you sold into slavery, it's me. 
But he didn't. He waited. Why now? What, what's changed about now that he finally feels like it's time to reveal himself? You see, Judah's appeal showed something about Judah, didn't it? It showed that something inside him had changed. You see, years before, he was one of the guys Reuben tried to convince the brothers, don't do what you're going to do. Don't, don't sell him into slavery. Don't kill him. But Judah was right there. He just went right along with them, sold them right into slavery, and was glad to do it. But 22 years later, he stands there and says, no, take me. Take me. Let him go. I don't want to see any more hurt. I don't want to see any more sorrow. I don't want to see any more pain. He's willing to sacrifice himself for his brother, even though he's innocent of the theft. Let me tell you, folks, that is repentance. That is a genuine turn. That is a genuine change. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want to close this morning. I want to talk very quickly about the difference between regret and repentance. The, the, the difference between being sorry for something that you've done and repenting of something that you've done. 2 Corinthians 7.9 says this. Paul was writing and he says this. He says, Yet now I am happy, not because you're sorry. That's not, he says, I'm not happy just because you're, sorrow, you're sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. See, there's a lot of people out there that are sorry for their sins. They're sorry they made such a mess of their marriage. They're sorry they've been such a terrible father. They're sorry they've been unfaithful to their spouse. They're sorry that they got into the addictions. They're sorry that their, their thought processes are so nasty and dirty and corrupt. They're sorry. But yet they don't change. They're sorry. They wish it was different, but yet they don't change. Now let me tell you, sorrow is part of repentance. So what Paul said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy not just because you're sorry, but because your sorrow led you to the next step, right? So before you get to repentance, you have to be sorry. But if you stop there, nothing's happened. If, there's, if a change does occur in your life, there is, being sorry is not repenting. Being sorry is an emotion. Being sorry is a feeling. Repentance is action. Repentance is doing something about your sorrow. See, repentance goes way beyond just being sorrow. Repentance turns away from that sin. It says, yeah, I'm sorry I'm going down this road. I'm going to turn and go back. I'm going to go another way. That's repentance. See, repentance brings about a change of emotions. It brings about a change of your intellect, the way you think. It, it, it brings about a change, in, and of course, your actions have to change. Doesn't mean you don't fall. Doesn't, doesn't mean you don't mess up sometimes, but you're walking a new road. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Matthew 3 8, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said this produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, Jesus says when you repent, you will produce fruit that shows you've repented. If you just keep going down the same road and being sorry and doing the same things you've always... That's not fruit of repentance. That's just fruit of, a, of an immoral life. Produce fruit that shows you've repented. Later in Revelation, talking to one of the churches, he will say this, Repent and what? Do the things you did at first. See, repentance, 
being sorry, regretful, that's just feelings. That's just emotions. You can be sorry today, you wake up tomorrow, and that feeling's gone, and you're just right back at it. I, I was talking with someone in the last couple weeks that, God help them, they just keep going down the same path and the same path. And every time you talk to them, boy, I want to be different. I want to be different. I want to do things different. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Every single time. And the next time, it's the exact same thing. Over and over. It's a, he's sorry. He's sorry for his actions. He really is. But he just can't repent. He can't change. Or he doesn't change. See, Jesus said very clearly, repentance involves fruit. Repentance involves actions. It's a changed life. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of acting. It's a new way of walking. We saw that in our story today with, with Joseph and, and his brothers. They had truly repented. See, just, and here's the thing. Once they had truly repented, then they were able to reconcile with Joseph, right? That's why he waited. Are they different? And when he saw they were, reconciliation came about. The exact same thing is true with us and God. You cannot reconcile with God without repentance. That you, reconciliation with God does not occur. Jesus said, believe and repent. Repent of your sins. Turn, change. Let reconciliation occur. Because reconciliation with God only, only occurs, not when there's sorrow but when there's true change in your life. Next week, we turn to Genesis 45. We've got five more chapters. I was 54 when I started teaching this, and I'm 56. Does time fly? I mean, it's ridiculous how fast this goes. We've got five chapters left, um, probably about, about uh, another five or, uh, five or six weeks, and we'll get through this. Uh, I've already prepared where we're going next. I am... I'll just give you a brief hint. There are two books in the Bible that I was always, I won't say fearful, but I was, I was very intimidated to handle. Uh, one of them was Romans, which I've already done uh, a few years ago. We're going to do the second one. And I won't tell you what it is until the Sunday you show up, but uh, uh, it, is a, it is an amazing book, and I've already started working in it and preparing lessons for it. Uh, and we'll get there in about, a, in about a month. But next week, we pick back up with Genesis 45. Let's pray for